Greetings, dear listeners. It's just Shadi and I this week talking about liberalism, which seems to be on people's minds these days. We start the discussion with Ukraine. Will the war revitalize our commitment to liberalism, or will the populists still win? We then turn to Shadi's own attitudes to liberalism. I try to press him on how he squares his commitments in a public context with his narrower ideas about promoting democracy abroad. Paying subscribers will see us go deeper in the debate in part two, including me drilling down more on how all this plays out in foreign policy. Are we Americans really more moral when it comes to war? Before we get to the episode, a little housekeeping. We're changing the way we roll out our podcasts. As a paying subscriber, you have typically had to switch between our two podcast feeds. Going forward, we'll be posting the full episode, part one and part two, into this RSS feed. This means this will be the only feed you need from here on out. We hope this helps improve your experience with Wisdom of Crowds. As always, thank you for your support. We couldn't do this without you. On to the show. Where should we begin? I think we should begin. There's a lot of talk about liberalism. I guess that's what I'm, 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 I'm realizing. I went and read Liam Bright's essay, which you praised but disagreed with in your latest. But then I noticed that there's a, a lot of stuff going on about this. Have you noticed this? That there's like it's liberalism's in the air again as a as a point of contention. It didn't fully register until you stepped out and I just read a couple articles really quickly five minutes ago. And I'm like, oh my God, there was that Ross Douth, that column, which yep. I hadn't read. I've read it now. Yep. I guess Ezra Klein wrote something. Yeah, it does seem in Fukuyama's essay as well. Yep. So there there are some pretty prominent folks who are who are writing about this, I guess, in light of Ukraine that, you know, in indirect or direct ways, the struggle in Ukraine has made these issues more relevant. I mean, what's worth fighting for? How do you fight for the liberal idea? And I guess Ukrainians aren't really doing that per se, but they are clearly fighting for something. So it forces us to sort of reflect on how we sustain ourselves as a nation without having an external enemy. Or maybe we do have an external enemy and that enemy is Russia. Well, so yeah, I think that that's, I think what I want to talk about. Uh, and I... I really picked up on that in uh, in Liam's piece as well, though he's not writing about Ukraine, and he seems to have just sort of jotted this off, uh, um, not really tied to any of those things. But they they all do somehow tie tie together, and it does get to that question of the nation state for me. Um, let me just start by you know Frank's uh, argument uh, first. Done. And by Frank, just clarify you mean Francis Fukuyama. Yeah, Frank. Everyone, <laughs> we're all on first name first first name basis here uh, at the pod. Everyone who's listening as well. Frank's essay, um, uh, I think, in, in foreign affairs, and we'll link that as well, which really deals with the nation state, is um, is is interesting and important. Uh, but the piece that he did for American Purpose a few weeks back which was uh, saying that this was a moment for the revitalization of liberalism. Um, I guess, let me ask you, do you think that's true? Or is it, do you hope it's true, maybe, is, is, the, is, the, is the question. Do you, do you feel like there's... Probably both. I think both. I, I, I feel more persuaded by liberalism today than I did two months ago, for sure. And I, I assume that I'm not alone, and I'm sure that I'm not alone that, um, and that's partly because 
I've stopped caring about wokeness. I'm sure my I'm I'm sure I'll get interested in that again at some point, maybe when things abroad cool down. But I I think I think it's more obvious now, at least to me, that wokeness is absurd. So maybe that pushes me to have more faith in liberalism. And that might be unrealistic because obviously all these woke debates are still going on, even if we don't care about them or if we're not following them. But um, so that's one thing. But I also feel that, well, first of all, I mean, like populism is less compelling insofar as it, it, pushes parties to lean closer to Russia. So in, in Europe, right-wing populist parties are more Putin-friendly. So they end up getting hurt to some extent by that association. So I think that those are the different dynamics that are happening from my perspective. So look, you know, I I, uh, I had a, uh, a conversation um I, yeah, I don't think you'll mind. I don't think any of this is was was uh, particularly in uh, in private. I had a conversation with our friend uh, Ben Haddad uh, over the weekend, um, and uh, as you know, uh, he's in France. And you know, uh, while he's still uh, basically my boss at the Atlantic Council, running the Europe Center, uh, he's also doing a lot of TV over there and is watching the um, uh, the Macron Le Pen election uh, very closely. Um, and he had he he offered a really interesting bit of analysis that I think flies in the face of your optimism and kind of Frank's optimism there as well. Uh, he said that that when the war broke out, uh, Le Pen and uh, Zemmour in particular, who, as you said, um, you know the the right wing and uh, really far right uh, candidates who now represent, or at least Le Pen seems to represent much more the sort of. Uh, Central, the not respectable, but she is the 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 uh, the sort of uh, center of gravity for the right in France. I think at this point, um, yeah. She uh, that they took big hits in the early days of the war, and uh, Ben said, you know, everyone in France assumed, uh, like you did, like I did, quite frankly, that this is a big um, uh, comeuppance for populism because of their affinities for Putin, and that a certain moral moral clarity had descended. But he said, you know, the, the shocker in the first round of the French elections is that, uh, that Le Pen performed as well as she did. Uh, some of the stories right before the first round uh, had her performing a little better. So I think some people have, have breathed a sigh of relief that she didn't so overperform, uh, you know, expectations. But still, it's striking how well she did in the first round. Um, and the, the polls for the second round, again, are, are giving the edge to Macron, but still she's contending. And, and, uh, Ben said to me something really interesting. He said, in the early days, we all thought this was a values thing, that you know, some clarity had been instilled and this was damning the populists. But, but he said the other thing he noticed you know, in proper Tom Friedman style, taking cabs around Paris and talking to <laughs> regular people, was that the real panic in the early days of the war was uh, one about nuclear confrontation and nuclear exchange, which would directly involve uh, France and, you know, countries on the European continent. And that the striking thing is uh, that the really atrocious um, um, uh, massacre footage in Bucha and other towns that have been liberated by the Ukrainians um, don't seem to have actually impacted uh, the standing of, um, 
of the populist candidates in in the polls. They didn't they didn't seem to register like a a, a, a larger impact on their credibility. Um, instead, uh, you saw uh, Le Pen rising, and and the the. Um, Again, as you know, and maybe our listeners do too, Le Pen has been running on actually a pretty savvy campaign even before the the uh, Ukraine invasion, uh, the Ukraine invasion by Russia, um, arguing for uh, uh, economic things. She already saw that that inflation is going to be an issue, that prices are going up, so she 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 based her whole campaign on that, and that is now increasingly resonant. And Ben was sort of tentatively concluding that. That you know, while certainly the the moral uh, condemnation of Russia is widely felt uh, among French voters, um, that sense of universal solidarity around values is not really what's at play. They're like, well, Russia's being terrible, and God, we wish the Ukrainians the best, and we hope we can help them, et cetera, et cetera. But they don't see it as as a as a value struggle, and instead are saying. Uh, yeah, but really, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to sacrifice, you know, my standard of living? Um, I forget where I saw, you know, I think it was in Britain that, you know, given the prices that are going up and energy prices and things like that, uh, the amount of extra money that's projected that each household will have to spend in the coming year, uh, it's really high. Uh, something like, you know, 5,000 pounds or something like that, additional costs going up. Um, I saw some analysis elsewhere about, you know, the predictions about inflation, um, uh, within the United States. And again, uh, it was something like per household, uh, an additional $800, could it be per month for the same basket of goods? I don't know. Don't, dear listeners, don't take my word for it. I'll try and dig <laughs> up some of this stuff and, and um, you, can, you can check my figures. But, but in any case, inflation's a real thing and it's going to impact people's uh, costs of living and standards of living. And um, it struck me what Ben was saying, his worries about Le Pen's rise are held beneath them a certain kind of, I think, implicit critique about um, this idea that all of us, um, you know, people who follow the ideas space very much have about the importance of these things. I'm not sure that that's how it's playing out within, uh, within voters and within countries and within nations. So uh, I don't think, it, you know, I'm more or less hopeful, pessimistic about the future of liberalism, I just don't think it's going to be nearly as definitive as I think, you know, Frank Fukuyama hoped in that piece in American Purpose. Look, I don't think it's definitive either because liberalism's weaknesses are still there and nothing can really undo that. And those are inherent in the liberal project. So what we talked about in our last episode with, Chris, with um, Christine Ambon, Rethinking Sex, you know, we're unhappy. We're unhappy about what liberalism has given us or not given us too much choice, too much freedom. We don't know how to contend with that. And there are these things in the liberal idea that are counter to human nature. Human nature needs some restriction of choice. Unlimited choice is chaotic and difficult to process. So those things will remain. And those are perpetual weaknesses within liberalism that can never be resolved. So there will always be challengers, there will always be competitors. I think the question though is whether any of those challengers or competitors have a chance of displacing liberalism as the dominant paradigm. And that's where I'm much more skeptical that those other ideologies can do that. I mean, liberalism doesn't have to win out entirely. The, the One of the good things about 
liberal societies or liberal polities is that they can accommodate anti-liberal voices within their project. Um, and we have people criticizing um, criticizing these ideas all the time in the US and that works and that continues. So, but can any of them defeat liberalism or create a post-liberalism that is compelling and coherent that actually gains the support of tens of mil well, I guess in some ways Trumpism is that, um, but that's not, a, that's not a full blown alternative. That's not exactly an alternative ideological paradigm yet. Yeah. I, here, I, here's where I, I guess I, I, I'd um, maybe want to nudge you on because largely I want to nudge you on it because you are, um, you seem to, you know, well, I mean, would you, is it fair to describe you? I mean, I, I make fun of you calling you a neocon, but are you, are you a liberal internationalist? I would never call myself that because it just sounds lame. Yeah, I mean, it's- I mean, I might be. But no, but that's, I think it's an interesting question and it, it gets to Frank, uh, Francis Fukuyama's piece in, in, uh, in Foreign Affairs. Do you remember, uh, we had uh, Frank Fukuyama over at the American Interest offices several years ago. I know you were there. Yeah, and, I was there. And do you remember there was um, uh, an exchange between, I forget, it was someone from maybe the NED or one of the, the democracy uh, places. And, and uh, she asked a question having to do with uh, universal values and, and rights. And, and he really pulled up short. And it's actually in the essay, what's nice to see, pulled it back really short and said, well, well, hold on a second. All of these things are imminent in the state. The state provides for rights. They're not really transcendent in any meaningful sort of way. Um, and I think that's why the, you know, liberal internationalism, and that's why I, I asked you, you know, in a, in a non-vituperative um, way, whether you describe yourself that way, is, you know, where do you situate the concept of rights and you know the, the rights that inhere to individuals um, are they transcendent or, or do they inhere in the state? Um, I'm I'm very sympathetic to to Frank's argument uh, that they inhere in the state and liberalism is a great way to organize the state, um, but that once you sort of get beyond the confines of the state, um, you run into all sorts of problems. Uh, I don't know how do you how do you grapple yeah, with that? Yeah, well, the state must give those rights meaning and breathe life into them, so to speak. But those rights are also pre-political, that they exist prior to the state because they're founded on something that came, that came before the state and is independent of the state, which is the kind of sacrosanct conception of the individual having dignity. And this is maybe where religious inspirations come in, that the Abrahamic faiths invested the individual with a kind of inherent dignity. And that individual is accountable to God as an individual. Um, so what we look at today and we talk about egalitarianism and the individual as a unit, those are ultimately what Schmidt might call secularized theological concepts. I mean, all of this is sneaking in Christianity in a secular context, and we don't even realize the Christian roots of a lot of these ideas. But those ideas that helped inform liberalism and helped liberalism become what it is today 
um, are are prior. So in that sense, they're there, obviously, to implement them and to give people those freedoms and to protect the individual. You do need a state to play some role. But I don't know. Does that does that address what you're? It kind of does. But this is where I I really liked Liam Bright's essay and his uh, critique of liberalism. Um, largely because I think he takes the rights seriously and uh, takes them as universals. Now, again, he's not a religious person. I think he's he's representative. Well, I don't know him. I mean, just from the essay, it doesn't seem like he's, he's, he's particularly religious. Um, but it's... Uh, what I liked about the essay is that he takes the concept of individual dignity and equal rights for all individuals around the world seriously. And I think in one of the passages there, he 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 drills down onto that in a um, particularly good way, which I've seen a lot of really smart leftists do. Their enemy ends up being the state because it is exclusionary. And ultimately, even if it operates within, you know, has a, uh, is guided by and organized along liberal principles internally, the state itself is well, inimical to some kind of universal liberalism in the sense that at the very minimum, and we've talked about this before on the, on the, on the podcast, the very notion of uh, citizenship is exclusionary. Means that if you're in, you have certain rights guaranteed by the state. If you're out, you don't necessarily. And that's why the question of immigration ends up being so fraught uh, on, a, on a, I think this like ideas, moral plane. Um, I, I'm, Perfectly comfortable to say that liberalism is a convention, call it that. Maybe that's too harsh, but I, I th that is how I think about it, is a convention that leads to a pretty good state of affairs within, within a state. Um, not perfect. Uh, there are obviously contradictions that, uh, that happen as a result of this, um, and uh, these are perhaps irresolvable within the state, but you know, it's perhaps even one might say a very productive kind of uh, tension that leads to iterations of, you know, marginal improvements, both to material living and perhaps even to the recognition of, of a broader set of rights within the country. But if you instantiate that further, as I think Liam is doing in his piece and says, well, you know, rights are real, individuals are real, pluralism and global pluralism is a real thing. Um, uh, the way that wealth is created, you know, uh, I'm trying to not, not get into sort of, you know, uh, leftist cant about, uh, capitalism and exploitation, but the way these things work is basically that, you know, for our standards of living, uh, we have to go into poorer countries where, uh, all sorts of standards for, um, uh, what's it called, uh, for, for rights are lower and take advantage of that to, for arbitrage reasons to, to keep prosperity going in our countries. And, you know, I think the, the, the liberal would say, well, yes, sure, these are bad things, but liberalism is internally working towards this and is addressing them. So it's, you know, it's good for everyone, even if people are suffering right now. But I think what, what Liam gets correct is that there's some point where maybe that kind of contradiction breaks down. Um, and you have to start thinking, in global terms, if you take these things seriously, not as conventions, but really seriously. Um, and I don't, I don't really buy that. I, 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 that's why I insist on liberalism being a set of conventions, not something that's inherently true. Um, and, 
because I think once you break down the nation state, you fall back to uh, a nastier set of affairs because the nastiness is kind of the normal mode of human interaction, if that makes sense, you know? So liberalism to me is something that's precious and should be, it's a, it's a, it's a set of conventions that should be preserved and guarded against within state within a society, but shouldn't be taken so seriously as to uh, uh, imagine them globally. Now, again, as I've argued to you many times on this podcast, you know, I have a lot of respect for the religious perspective on this, which I think grants a certain kind of weight to um, to the 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 moral claim for universality. I, I understand it completely. I'm not a believer, but I understand how, at least, you know, if I were, I would I would see the claim much more clearly. But even still, I'm not sure what, how that works in purpose uh, in practice. And you know, uh, Liam at one point in the essay says, "I'm not going to deal with what the alternative should be," but he says the alternative needs to be thought about. Um, and he identifies that alternative at the limit of where the nation state itself is. I don't know, illiberal is too strong a word, but coercive mm. and um, uh, and brutal and bad to people <clears throat> not in the in-group. I don't know, that was a whole lot of words. Yeah, Does any of that yeah, like, resonate? Look, yeah. yeah, I mean, the problem with post-liberalism, when people are searching for these alternatives, they reach a dead end when they're writing a book or a long essay like this, that we know something is wrong and we know people are unhappy, but then when it comes to talking about actual alternatives, it's more like, let's talk about the alternatives and then no one actually offers one, you know, which leads me to believe that there may not actually be an alternative. I mean, we can, we can aspire to that and hope for that and try our best to, to devise modifications or even maybe not full-on alternatives, but major modifications to the liberal status quo. I'm all for that. It just seems very challenging to come up with something compelling. And this relates to what I've called the problem of the last third, that if you read ambitious books that diagnose the problems in our society extremely well, then you're looking for their affirmative vision for the alternative in the last 20, 30, 100 pages of the book, it's not there. It's not there. And I don't, and you know, I joked the other day on Twitter by um, when I repurposed Merkel's um, famous phrase, there is no alternative. She was referring to um, the dominance of, of her approach to the EU and, and so forth. Um, but sometimes I feel like even if there should be an alternative to the way things are, if there should be an alternative to liberalism, that doesn't mean there is. And I think I'm starting to wonder if that's where I end up on some of these questions, because I've given a lot of thought to what the alternatives might look like from an Islamic perspective. And Islamist parties have tried to offer an ideological alternative. And for reasons that we don't have to go into now, what they end up doing is basically accepting the existing structures of the nation state, of the state as an idea, and then they superimpose rather superficial Islamic ideas onto the existing structure. But they're not offering a genuine intellectual alternative because they're stuck within modern ways of thinking and they can't see beyond the state. So this is where I probably agree with Liam Bright that 
the state is a big part of the problem here. The state limits our imagination. It limits what's possible. And we have to work within the state's constraints, or it seems like we do. Um, so do you think that the state is a, a morally bad thing? Because I think Liam does. Uh, I don't think it's morally bad. I think it happens to be necessary in the modern era just because of the scale of what needs to be accomplished. With much larger populations, you need to bureaucratize government. You need technical expertise. All of that requires the enlargening of the state. So when people fantasize about um, small states or very limited states, they're stuck in a pre-modern paradigm. I mean, that was possible when there were only like 200,000 people in a major country. But when there's like, um, when there's hundreds of millions, then what exactly do you do? Um, no one's been able to figure out a way to have proper decentralization where you consciously weaken the state over time. Can we think of any states in advanced, in at least in advanced contexts where the state has grown weaker and smaller and shrunk, people who try to shrink the state fail. And there's a reason for that because there's a necessity, there's some necessity there. So I, would, I wouldn't say it's bad or good. I think it's unfortunate that we're so dependent on states and states are so dominant in our imagination. And you know, one of my major objections, of course, is that states distort religion and that's a critique aimed at the Middle East, that when you have strong states, states need to regulate religion because religion can become a threat to the survival of the state. So they're always interfering in what would otherwise be personal individual questions about God and what God wants and what God wills. So that is a major critique that I have, but that maybe doesn't apply as much to the US. It's interesting. Um... So, the, the, you know, I take your point about the last third. I, I think I've said to you before, I, 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 don't, I think that the problem is demanding the last third. I think books are better if they don't even try. They should just have critiques and let, you know, because I don't think, <laughs> I don't think intellectuals actually create new paradigms that way. I think paradigms emerge different in different ways. But anyway, um, I'm, I'm struck, though, that you agree with at least partially with Liam about this idea that the state is somehow the heart of the problem, but is, you know, unfortunately not um, transcendable, if that makes sense. Um, to me, I, I uh, as I was saying, I, I feel like the, the state is a kind of bulwark against much worse things because I generally don't see that humanity can organize itself. And it's, it's, it's much more, I think, for me, more profound than what you're saying, that like you have large groups of people and you need bureaucracy to organize life and that that's the state and we have to live with that. I think it's, it's uh, the state provides a certain kind of peace and coherence that allows a, um, a set of prescriptions, liberalism, say, or, you know, conventions, liberalism, uh, to function. Liberalism itself actually has no meaning outside of it. That's, that's I guess, as profound for me is that, you know, I, I don't think one can even think about liberalism, universal liberalism, in anything 
it just it, it it falls apart largely for all the reasons that Liam's talking about. But but he he's coming at it from the other side. He's like, well, liberal ideas about about universal uh, equality, dignity, and the rest of them are sound and true. And how do we transcend the state to actually um, realize those promises of liberalism? To me, it's more like, in fact, liberalism is not true in that way. It can't be realized universally because of human nature. And so the best you could ever hope for for liberalism is a liberal state. Um, And even that will necessarily be very imperfect, maybe self-correcting over time. So it's a it's a it's a much more pessimistic sort of vision of it, and that the limit, like we're we're probably at the limit of what liberalism can achieve for quote unquote humanity. Now, yeah, and this and this is why I have little interest in promoting liberalism abroad. I think we need to be more modest, and that's why I tend to focus on promoting democracy abroad, which allows different peoples and cultures to then decide what they want to do with that democracy and go in different directions. But this idea of making liberalism universal, I mean, I think I think Liam's also talking about it from a, a leftist perspective. And I think we also have to be honest that humans have limited empathy. So where I really agree with you is liberalism works within the state structure because we as human beings struggle to extend our empathy beyond some circle that's close to us. And I think our fellow Americans is a natural place to draw the line, to ask people to extend their liberal assumptions to non-Americans in parts of the world they've never been and don't understand, I think tests the limits of human nature. That's not who we are, and I don't know if we can be that. And that's where the utopianism of the universalist idea um seems completely unrealistic and also somewhat frightening because it attempts to do something that is really fundamentally contrary to, to who we are. So let's just, so at some at some point we have to accept the limit. And you know, we've talked before about how um every conception of the we depends on a they. Yep. So you got to have a they. You got to you got to figure out who your enemy is. There's friends and there's enemies. Indeed. You can maybe make the realm of the enemy as small as possible and you want to progress in that direction. You don't want to have too many enemies to define yourself against, but you still need to have a they and you define yourself in opposition to the they. And that's why, again, this is this maybe isn't good. It's just a statement of reality as it is. And that's why, you know, I'm always intrigued by the idea of how external enemies can push us as Americans to maybe not come together, but to at least realize that our differences aren't as stark. So if Russia, or to be more specific, Putin's Russia is the external enemy, it's going to be interesting to watch in the coming years, whether that helps us dampen some of our ideological divides at home. I guess I'm not super optimistic and we've, we've you know, there's a reversion to a lot of the culture war um, as people have lost focus on on Ukraine. But in theory, having an external enemy should help us in that regard because historically it has. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I think we're, we're in very near uh, perfect agreement on a lot of that. Rare. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> Let me let me ask you just to roll back on something else because I, I thought it was interesting what you were saying, uh, maybe one or two responses back that uh, you're coming to sort of you know uh, 
becoming more skeptical of, you know, the, the kind of, um, uh, I don't know, the, the, the sort of, you know, the, the, the projects in the Middle East of these, these Islamists who take the state for granted and then put a, a, a sort of a, a thin patina of religiosity over it. Um, and but then in the in the subsequent answer, you said that you know at the same time you're you're very much a democracy promoter, not a liberalism promoter. Um, is it was there tension there? Because to a certain extent, um, I, I I you know even in your tweets and in in your in most recent essay, you you do come out and saying, well, I am a liberal. So are you are you reimagining and thinking through whether you know you're that comfortable with i mean there's obviously there's the realm of the possible which is you know we promote democracy to allow people to find their own way and create a certain kind of society but i mean i don't know i don't think you've ever been particularly enthusiastic about uh you know the the sort of islamist project or maybe you have are you revisiting that at all i don't know tell me about that <laughs> Yeah, just to clarify, I think I've always been a liberal, but I generally self-define as a liberal who's critical of liberalism. Right. And so I criticize from within the tradition. I'm not someone who is throwing stones from outside and trying to break the structure down. Yeah. Um, but that's just me. And I also realize that I'm a product of a particular environment. I'm born and raised in the U.S., and that means I'm naturally going to incline towards liberal ideas more than say someone who was born in Pakistan or Egypt because their context is completely different. Or Croatia. So I think that I, what, sorry? Or Croatia, I said. Anyway. Oh, or Croatia, yeah, yeah. And and this is where I think in, in my most recent essay on is there such a thing as the common good, I, I try to make the argument that one can believe in, one can believe that something is true without believing it's true for others. So if liberalism feels more correct or in line with how I think how I think things should be, that's still a very much a personal decision based on my own particular circumstances. And I wouldn't want to extend those premises to other people in, in other countries and, and so on. So that's sort of how I see my liberalism. It's not meant to be extended universally. And I very much respect that others may want to try on, I don't wanna say it's not even different systems, but different approaches to their politics. If they wanna go in a more populist direction, they wanna try, even if Islamism doesn't offer a genuine alternative, it still is different. You would have changes that would make liberals very nervous. It wouldn't be a complete rethinking of the state, but things like restricting alcohol consumption, uh, you know, maybe some limits on on gender mixing at certain levels of schooling, Islamizing the educational curriculum, financial incentives for marriage or for having a larger number of kids, um, using the the mechanisms of the state to promote a particular conception of the good, even if it's not imposed, you would still see that in the kind of national culture more through television, radio, um, arts, culture, and so forth. So all these things could, could very well happen, and that falls short of a genuine alternative, but it could still be ideologically meaningful, and, and people should have the right to pursue those projects, even if we don't like those projects or think they're bad. That's, I guess, what I would say. So I'm not optimistic about these alternatives, but I think that 
people have the right to try them out. So who's we and who's bad, right? I mean, it struck me as you were delineating that, how 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 tightly. We as Americans. So like if we as Americans look to a Muslim majority country and we say, oh, it's bad that this Islamist party is trying to Islamize the educational curriculum. We can think that as Americans, but that has no bearing, I think, on the people in the countries in question. As long as they're expressing those desires legally and through the democratic process, they have the right to Islamize their educational curriculum. Okay, um, I, what struck me in your description there is how how you know neatly it maps onto what some of the national conservatives might might want, right? Uh, in the sense of again again this pursuit of the common good, which is what your essay they want to ban alcohol. Probably not, but uh, maybe no, no, no. I mean, I think I think I remember talking to you know not even uh, just back in the day uh, having an argument with um, uh, you know my my. Um, uh, my former colleague uh, Peter Blair, who's very much a bel- uh, believer, and he was sending me articles about you know how prohibition itself was not not the worst thing in the world, and you know <laughs> that it's been like completely oversold as a as a you know um, uh, as a complete and abject failure, and et cetera, et cetera. That yeah, why why is prohibition so bad? The other prominent person who I know has has said that if we could ban alcohol, even though his priors would prevent him from doing that, but he thinks it would be an excellent thing, is Tyler Cowen. He's written about this. <laughs> really? He's like he's like alcohol is. He's like I never drink. It's poison. It is so destructive of society. Uh, it it it's crippling to people. It destroys lives. It destroys lives by extension of people associated with with you know alcoholics and things like that. It's very addictive. You know, it's a, it's a horrible thing. He's written about this before. It's it's uh, you know, and he's a libertarian oh, who you know says, but obviously my priors dictate that we can't ban such things. But uh, if I could, you know, be emperor king, I would I would absolutely something like that. I don't know if he said that, but but that's that's the gist of what he's uh, what his argument on that sort of stuff is. So yeah, let's say even including including uh, the banning of alcohol, um, but but you know. The question then of, you know, the common good, and you said we as Americans, one could imagine, I, I can't imagine, but let's, let's, let's imagine that, that the project, uh, for whatever reason, uh, takes off in a bigger way. That, you know, I mean, prohibition did happen in this country, um, and uh, it was driven by a certain kind of religious zeal. Let's say, you know, we were talking about how wokeness is, you know, the great awokening. It's one of the these periodic religious revivals. Um, and it's true, as Ross Douthat's noting, you know, I mean, basically re- organized religion is really falling away in a big way in this country. But imagine somehow that there's um, a, a, a backlash against the sort of uh, the hedonism that is sometimes embedded in the broader, you know, uh, woke agenda, that kind of like personal liberation. There is a turn to religion. And you do get a kind of um, uh, uh, groundswell support for, you know, uh, Sorab's project. Let's just like pin it on him, Sorab Amari's project for national conservatism, even though there's several people really thinking about this. Um, And democratically, they managed to get parts of it through. Um, And let's just, you know, name a few of them. Let's say it's prohibition. Um, let's say it's more Sabbath laws, some, some Sabbath laws. I don't know. I don't think Sorab's ever said anything about reforming education, but you know, given how much education is in the sights of a lot of conservatives and, you know, what liberals quote unquote are doing to education and, you know, instilling 
<laughs> pedophile, pedophilia and whatever. I don't believe any of that. But, but, you know, part of that critique, clearly education would be in the crosshairs in some way, in some kind of revival like that. So I think so Rob's supportive of the Ron DeSantis efforts to limit what can be taught at certain levels of schooling. Sure, I sure. mean, I think that it is pretty widely held yeah. among the so, national. Yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, uh, like, imagining a, 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 a situation where, where this comes to pass in this country, I don't think it's impossible. I find it difficult, but I don't think it's impossible to imagine something like that would happen. Um, you know, as an analyst, you'd say, well, it's democratic, so it's fine. I have to live with it, but you wouldn't be happy. Happy, uh, happy. And, and that's an interesting what I'm word. To, what I'm trying to pin you on here is that you know is this thing you said like I I want to support democracy abroad, but I like liberalism here, and you value yes. it, and you're a liberal here. So as a liberal here, you would be unhappy with an illiberal project within the culturally defined liberal democratic United States. Yeah, I would be unhappy for sure. It's not what I would vote for or support, but if those people came to power through elections, it would be legitimate and it would be it would be something we'd have to respect. And I mean, that's of course always the challenge of democracy is learning to live with outcomes that you find personally distaste, distasteful or threatening. But that's just, I mean, but people have to deal with that after every election. I mean, if you're, you know, we had to deal with that with Trump and I was very vocal about talking about his legitimacy and, and respecting that. And similarly, you know, um, if you're a national conservative, you weren't happy if Biden won and you, you're worried that wokeness will take over, but you have to, or you should respect the outcome and not challenge it as illegitimate. So I don't, I don't see a huge tension there. That's part of the democratic process is coming to terms with your opponents, right? I mean, what no, what do you think would be the the major issue there? It's not a tension for me. I'm I'm just sort of uh, I'm, I'm I guess I'm trying to to query you on your self identification as a liberal, and yet. Um, Being content, well, not content, because you'd fight it, sure. So that's fair. Um, but would I look? I don't know. Would I fight it? It depends what we're talking about. Like I, I probably wouldn't be opposed to Sabbath laws. I think there's there's wisdom in the idea of you know closing stuff up once a week and not trying to have a perpetual twenty four seven work culture or business culture where everything's always open. I mean, so there are things that I, as a heterodox person, that I'd be amenable to, and I'm, I'm willing to listen to those arguments on their merits, and I can decide case by case whether this is something, you know, I would, I would support or be sympathetic to. I'm not going to be ideological about it. But if these people, you know, if these people come to power, they're also not going to undo liberalism. They're going to be still be working within a liberal framework they'll just be pushing things in a somewhat more illiberal direction. But we're not talking about a completely different regime. That's that's not really conceivable, especially if they're winning at the state or local level. Then we're talking about, again, modifications onto existing structures. And that's not exactly revolutionary. And I know we asked Sorab about this, and this has been a kind of a theme that's come up a number of times, to what extent are anti-liberals or non-liberals in America actually pushing for 
revolution in the sense of changing the American regime. And that's where I think a lot of it's rhetorical because first of all, it's, it's likely close to impossible to, to do that. Um, and, uh, but who know, you know, who knows what might happen in the future, but I'm, I'm, I'm sort of assuming that a lot of the existing liberal structures will still remain. And because liberals are so culturally dominant in America, that even if national conservatives gain support on the local or state level, they're still constrained by the overall liberal dominant culture. But, um, you know, you, you were one of the signers of the initial anti-woke letter that was published, uh, was it Mother Jones? Was that where it was published? <laughs> Mother Jones. I don't know. Where'd you publish oh that thing? Oh my God, no, Harper's, Harper's man. Yeah, okay, Mother Jones, Harper's. Um, and and it was a a um, a very you know impassioned call for a you know semi existential threat, which is interesting since then how much the right has run with that, right? Um, and especially you know even talking to Sorab and and you know reading his stuff and a lot of the people there are convinced that you know and you have a lot of sympathy for this. I, at least you've 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 voiced it before that that you know having control over. Uh, the cultural institutions, um, you know, gives a lot of leverage to sort of shaping the the bigger discourse. So I wonder, you know, I mean, I think part of the the idea that national conservatives would have is one that, you know, by resting control of a lot of these kinds of institutions, you could start reshaping the country in a way that would drift away from liberalism. So, I mean, that's maybe the the other sort of question about it. You know, is liberalism so intrinsic to this country that it 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 can't be played away with? Because again, that's part of the worry about wokeness is that certain kind of ideals are being undermined through this long march through the institutions. And the flip side of it would be that, you know, I think a lot of conservatives have concluded that, well, you know, that's the game as it's played right now. We need to seize the institutions in order to reshape society more broadly, more in line with what we are. So now society becomes this very malleable thing and we're worried about the malleability of it. And does that undercut your sort of, like your certainty that they're operating within a firmly grounded liberal framework? Is there not anything there to be worried about? I know they want to undermine it and they're open about that. I just don't see that as being possible in the, in the current dynamic. It might change. And I guess I'd say it frightens me insofar as like what I really want is people not to bother me. And this is where my misanthropic side comes out. Yeah, I don't like the idea of the state interfering in my life. And what I always liked about America, and maybe this is coming from a place of privilege, is that we we didn't look to the state growing up as a focal point in our lives. Um, and that's not, and and even you know, even when we did, we did have financial problems in our in our family, there was never this idea that the state is the solution. Um, and I appreciate that, and I I kind of just want to you know. I want to live my life in a way where the state isn't telling me what to do. I know that sounds like a little bit libertarian, but I just want to have, I want to carve out my own space to live my life the way I want to live it. Um, if that starts to be threatened, then I'd probably express more opposition. So it's a question of how much these changes would actually touch me personally. So wokeness is an, ex it's all around us and it's part of our, structures in any number of ways, corporations, institutions, um, bureaucracies. Um, but 
it doesn't necessarily affect me directly enough for me to be legitimately organizing around it. I know for some people it has affected them in that more personal way, especially on the on when it comes to local schools and what your kids are being taught. So I get that. But I think that's what I would be watching out for if there's some future like radical right party. To what extent does my autonomy start to be threatened as an individual who makes his own choices and decisions? Okay, so here's maybe the, the core of it. Let me push you like this. Um, I think you define uh, a freedom of press and you put it in the democracy category. But isn't that like the core liberal category? That it's the core liberal guarantee of pluralism. That's a liberal guarantee, not a democratic guarantee necessarily, because it shapes, it allows one to shape and participate in the shaping of a society. Um, and so you've criticized Orban, for example, for really cracking down on things like that, because um, it it precludes what would be a fair democratic process from taking place. Um, but that's a, a yeah, so it's not thing. about liberalism. Well, I mean, it's, it's a move that you make to say, well, this is, this is, that's, this is not liberalism. This is democracy. Um, but I wonder if that's true because again, getting back to the question of, you know, uh, the, the worry about, about wokeism is that it's, you know, it's, I don't know. Again, I, I'm not sure how much I buy it, but you know, the, the argument is that, it's shaping people's ability on how to even speak publicly. That by the you know control of the institutions, people are inhibited, and their their manners of thought are changing. And in fact, that's fine. Even yeah. those manners mm. of thoughts are undermining uh, the adherence to a basic liberal democratic, but I'd even say liberal value of granting everyone the ability to speak freely in the public sphere. Again, uh, whether that's democratic, liberal, I'll let you deal with that. But um, yeah, look. So, so you know, uh, you 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 want. I I would throw to you then that that even for sort of Islamists in other countries who you are granting a you know uh, uh, legitimacy due to democracy, there's a minimal liberalism embedded in your conception of the kind of minimal democracy you want in these societies. Right? Is that fair? Yeah, you have to have some individual freedoms for democracy to work, but not because those individual rights are, are transcendent or um, or almost like metaphysically awesome. It's mm. because democracy is about the right to oppose. And if you limit certain freedoms, then opposition parties won't have a legitimate shot at winning the next election. So it's about protecting the ability for people to make decisions on a collective level. So you can ban parties. And if you prevent any opposition media from operating, then how do opposition parties communicate their views to voters? So that's that's sort of how I come out on it. And I don't think these things are interchangeable because you know, prohibition is illiberal. You're restricting individual freedom. So if we think about liberalism as the expansion of individual freedom and choice, then clearly if Islamist parties come to power, they will be restricting that in some way. If national conservatives in America come to power, they'll be restricting certain freedoms when it perhaps comes to gay rights or trans rights and so forth. So the liberalism 
spectrum is still relevant for judging. It's a, yeah, it's a continuum. It's not a binary, it's not one or the other, but we kind of go back and forth along this spectrum. And then we can kind of assess is something more or less liberal than it previously was. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess, I guess the interesting thing is, is, you know, on the one hand, the way you, you phrased it, and I think this applies to Orbanism, but it's, it's, it's a squirrely thing. And this is why I think the, the right in this country has latched onto Orban in a lot of ways. You're saying he's, you know, uh, 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 preventing parties from organizing, getting their message out, limiting their access to certain media and the rest of this. And that's true. But, you know, I think the the more difficult thing is, you know, imagine that he allowed, um, there was some law in the books that allowed equal advertising on whatever, I don't even know if the Hungarians have a state channel. I presume they do, like all European countries. Uh, you know, allowed for some some kind of like equal time clause ahead of elections. But still, he had managed through his, you know, uh, crony capitalism, corrupt dealings to consolidate most of the media in the country around his vision. So you still have blogs, which I think you still do in Hungary. You know, you have like sort of small things, but they're not able to punch through the uh, actual uh, kind of hegemony over the media. And I think that's the the parallel to both wokeism and I think the the counter fantasy by the national conservatives is like, well, if we only are allowed to do that, we'll even grant you your, your minimal conception, but we'll shape people's conceptions and narratives so much by controlling the main things. And we will insist on, on you know, uh, putting these kinds of ideas that we think are the common good uh, into it and just frame the entire debate around that. Um, that's where I think a lot of liberals uh, are up in arms. And I guess that's what I'm pressing you on specifically is what's the line for you domestically in the United States? Never mind Hungary, never mind uh, you know Egypt or, or any other states in, in the Middle East that are going through a lot of this stuff. In the United so States- So my line yeah. is, mm, my line is coercion. This is why I don't buy the argument that wokeness, the hegemony of wokeness is like authoritarianism because the, you know, for the most part, I would say with few exceptions, it's not the state itself that is forcing people to be quiet or restricting their speech. Um, we're talking more about um, corporations or newspapers or publications which are independent and or private. So, um, you know, corporations have the right to determine their own policies as they see fit. Um, I don't like it. So Twitter and Facebook, we may disagree with their decisions, but ultimately those are their decisions to make. Um, and if the New York Times wants to promote wokeness and doesn't give voice to sufficient conservative voices, that's also an institutional prerogative. So I, I just don't buy this argument that we're living in anything close to authoritarianism. And this is an argument that that does annoy me when I hear it from the um, the illiberal right here in the US. And it's something I hear more and more often, and I can sympathize with where they're coming from. But I can also point out that they haven't, most of them lived under an actual dictatorship. And trust me, it is very, very different. It is not the same. So where I would start to get very concerned is when um, there are actually speech codes or things or outlets are being closed through state power and coercion. That's what we would have to watch out for. I think it's very unlikely for obvious reasons, 
But that's what makes me a little bit more optimistic that we still have a vibrant public debate because it's very difficult to imagine the state getting involved in speech, even in the way that some European, I mean, European countries uh, are still largely liberal democratic, but they have, for example, speech codes that would never fly here because of the First Amendment. That would worry me. So, um, so even if we inch a little bit towards the Western European model of criminalizing certain kinds of bigotry that aren't clearly defined, um, that's the sort of thing that would maybe spiral out of control. But short of that, you know what? If the woke are able to get their message out and capture institutions, that means they've done something effectively. It's our fault for not effectively opposing them. But you have the right to promote your own hegemony in a democratic setting, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have very developed opinions on that. I agree with largely everything you said there. Um, I'm just struck, you know, uh, the, the, the person who I think, and he's not alone, but I think a lot of the, the kind of um, people who, you know, even have memories of the Cold War and have like read a lot about how the Cold War authoritarian societies worked in the European context under communism. I think the 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 thing that spooks them about um, about wokeness is the ideological component of it and the kind of ideological coercion. You're right; the state doesn't have a role and doesn't seem like it's going to at any one point soon. But it, there is a a concern, and maybe it's misplaced um, that you know. Uh, letting an ideology, if we are to give ideology agency like this, but letting an ideology um, rule over uh, a set of institutions has implications for, you know, certain rights and freedoms down the road, but maybe not. I mean, I, I don't know. I just, I don't have a, I've always, I've always felt like that's an overstated case, but I, I've, I've never really engage with it enough to to come out one way or the other on it you know look i see where i see where it comes from and people don't say what they actually think we know this from all the available polling that that's getting worse people are self-censoring but you know what they don't have to self-censor and again maybe this is me coming from a place of privilege that i'm i feel sufficient i'm sufficiently secure um you know professionally and and financially where i can take risks and if 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 there's blowback, I can get through it and survive without it being absolutely devastating. Granted, many people don't have that luxury, but um, but that's still different because they can go to a different university or a different institution if they're an academic or an institution that is is more explicitly supportive of free speech. Um, it might not be easy, um, and if you're if you're on a tenure track in a particular um, university to kind of start from scratch somewhere else and all that, I mean, all of this is quite challenging, but but um, I don't know what you can really do about that besides fight back internally over time and try to persuade your fellow employees or faculty members that there's a diff there should be a different way of doing things that requires ideological persuasion. I think it's unfortunate that the free speech side has been losing in these debates because I think our position is the more obvious one, intuitive one, and it's not ridiculous, but clearly not being ridiculous is not enough to persuade people. 
But that's probably like, we're partly at fault. We must have done something wrong. Hmm. Like if, if we weren't able to bring enough people along with our vision for being more protective of free speech and open inquiry, I mean, it, we must be partly to blame. Like we have, I don't know, we haven't been conveying our, our views in a sufficiently compelling way. We are not consistent or principled enough or um, people want more meaning. So we can't just give them free speech. We have to give them a vision that is more inspiring and affirmative. And we failed to do that. And we've just fallen back on liberal neutrality and people aren't content as we've talked about this. A lot of this comes comes down to the fact that people are not happy with the status quo and they don't have religion, at least a lot of them don't have religion. So they look for alternative ideologies. Wokeness is one of them. So liberalism, because it has a thinness to it, because it doesn't actually, it doesn't offer sufficient meaning, at least as it's currently conceived and it's chaotic and people have too much choice, that un the resulting unhappiness fuels this search for alternative ideologies. So that's where I think we failed in that we haven't given people enough to believe in. I again, nothing to, nothing to contest there. I'm, I'm, I, I guess I'm just struck by another sort of shift that just happened and how you're describing it. <laughs> no, no, but bear me hear me out because I, 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 I guess I, I'm just trying to, to, to push you into sort of uh, defining your, relationship to liberalism. And I, I, I mean, I, I, I've, we've been doing this long enough. I have a pretty good sense of it. But the, the shift there was, was one of, of initially describing liberalism as somehow, you know, so deeply embedded in our culture that you're not worried about it being uh, properly undermined by, you know, uh, either wokeism or, you know, a resurgent uh, uh, religious nationalism that somehow, you know, by control of institutions, et cetera, as long as certain minimum free speech uh, things are, are, are left alone, you're fine with it. Um, but then now you've just described uh, liberalism as an ideology um, that is, uh, you know, under threat by these self-same forces and is unable to provide the kind of meaning. And again, I, none of that's surprising to me, just the juxtaposition between the embeddedness of it in a society and your comfort with that embeddedness um, then tempered with this idea that it's just just another competing ideology, and you know we need to do better to defend our side, our ideological side, and maybe ground it a little better so that the other ones fall off. Um, I don't know. There might yeah, not be a there's contradiction a tension there, there, but it, it's it's interesting. There's, yeah, there's definitely a tension there. Um, I'd probably have to think about it a little bit more about how to resolve that tension. Yeah. But you know what? I think I'm also comfortable saying that not all tensions have to be resolved because I struggle with these issues because I'm a liberal who's critical of liberalism. Sometimes I feel like I want to fight for quote unquote liberalism. And again, like, what do we really mean when we say that? Um, here I was talking more specifically about, you know, free speech on universities. There's other parts of the liberal idea that I may be less enthusiastic about. Um, so, but sometimes there's things that I think are worth fighting for that are generally considered to fall under under liberalism. And then there are things that I'm more critical of, the unlimited choice and the focus on individual autonomy at the expense of a collect collective sense of the good. And God forbid, I just used yeah. a version of the common good, which yeah. I just wrote a piece kind of against 
but it's more complicated than that. And that's why I'm trying to work work out those tensions in my Wisdom of Crowds pieces, because I do go a little bit back and forth on this. And that's going to be an ongoing tension. And I know people aren't comfortable with too much internal tension, but I guess I'm getting a little bit more comfortable with it. And I'm fine with sharing my thought process with people out loud, or at least on the page. Yeah. All right. I just think... I just think for me, uh, the interesting thing on this is less about you and the in the domestic con- context because I think, I think I, I I we've known each other for a long time and this podcast is you know I think we know each other even better as a result of it from talking to each other all the time in this uh, in this mode. Uh, so I I I I don't think I'd be particularly surprised by anything you would do in any of these sort of putative scenarios uh, going forward within the United States. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a little more interested in um, how this relates to international relations, maybe. Um, and what I was pushing you earlier on, this idea of um, whether, um, whether there is an embedded liberalism in what you want for other societies. Um, and in your sort of minimalist democratic thing. And, you know, maybe then grappling with, you know, how that relates to foreign policy a little bit. I mean, these are huge topics, so not, it's not going to get resolved in a, certainly in a, in, a, in a short little bonus segment here. But um, I, 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 do, I do wonder because, you know, my, I feel like I'm, I'm in my own head for myself kind of I don't have a lot of these tensions because I don't impute an inherent value to any of these systems necessarily. Um, and so I, 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 uh, as I said, like I, I, I like living in a liberal society, but it's just a mode of organization. It's fragile. It could or couldn't go. I can imagine many different ways it could, it could collapse. But when, when thinking about guiding foreign policy based on these principles, um, grounded as they are for me on like contingencies that run at the limit of the state, I, I don't find myself compelled to argue for a broader program for the world. Um, and, uh, and that's why I keep pushing you to sort of make a, a religious program for foreign policy, quite frankly, uh, grounded in certain religious concepts, not in, in, in sort of this like loose rights talk. Um, but then, of course, I think that's alienating to a lot of people because it sounds like crusades or some bullshit like that. So I don't know. I Run with that well, a little look, bit pra- if you have some thoughts. Well, you know, but well, look, there's a practical argument for it that the more autocracies there are in the world and the stronger they become, the more it threatens the U.S. So you don't necessarily have to rely on religious or moral premises to come to a similar conclusion. If there is in fact a struggle between democracies and autocracies, a simplification, but still I think it's it gets at something real that's going on now. Then if we wanna protect, and I, I don't mean to sound like some American politician on an ad, but if we wanna protect the American way of life, then we do have to oppose authoritarian regimes abroad. So that would be the the, the simpler practical argument that's accessible to a larger number of Americans, even if they have no interest in morality. 
Yeah. But I would say morality is part of who we are. So that sense of moral mission is embedded in the American idea. So if we want to continue being America, we can't completely discard those things because because then we'd be something other than what we are. So it's almost like I, maybe that's a little a little bit circular and feel free to push back on that. But I would also say that we derive strength from our morality, that part of the reason that America is able to project its power throughout the world in a way that China still hasn't been able to and probably won't be able to is because we are a democracy and because we are better at some fundamental level, as I, you know, as I've argued since the Ukraine conflict started, we are better than Russia. We are better than China and we're better and morally superior because we are democratic. And that resonates with more people throughout the world. I mean, it's not as if people are clamoring for the Russian model or they want to implement the Chinese model. Some people occasionally say that, but um, is there a big shift towards Chinese cultural norms and being like China? Not really, not really. So that's what I would say. That would be the broader argument for Americans that there is a long struggle. We are better. So on and so forth. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I push back. I, I guess I just push back. I wonder, you know, part of our worry about China is that they are becoming economically powerful. Um, and that with that, all sorts of, call it moral suasions, come come along with that. I think that's at the core of why what we're worried about with China, that um, that in fact, it's we know that at, at the core, it's less our values and way of life that's attractive and more the fact that we're successful and powerful. And yeah, we're quote unquote better than Russia, uh, largely because our military doesn't just implode <laughs> when it goes into conflict. <laughs> we're more competent and much richer. But, so there's but that. also like whatever you want to say about the American military, and this is a point that I made to Glenn, and I wish to reiterate it, like we don't, American military leaders and officers don't go into battle thinking, let us kill civilians. I, I'm comfortable saying that the way that our military is structured, that's never an express intent on any kind of systematic level that we are going in to kill as many people as possible to force them to capitulate and surrender. Um, so like, there's also that. I mean, like, we don't. I mean, Hiroshima, <laughs> Nagasaki. I, okay, well, I'm talking, I mean, okay, I'm talking about like, I was recently. talking more about like presently, like in the present tense, but I if mean, we're comparing ourselves to, to be Russia. Fair, to be fair, we've we've not been in an existential struggle like World War II. We did, we did contemplate using nuclear weapons in the Korean War when we were worried about it. Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I fine. I, I I don't. But we don't, I don't derive don't, pleasure. Like I don't. I don't think it's I don't fair like, to say I, that America. <laughs> I don't. I, what do you think? Putin's masturbating right now to to like civilians dying. I I don't. I no, mean, no, maybe I he think is. There is a, a. I think there is a level of comfort with mass killing. Like there is no, there is no moral conflict or struggle. And we've gotten the intercepts from you know Russian officers saying basically like go, you know, if you want to rape people, go go forth. I mean that sort of thing. 
they're just like a wanton like immorality that I just don't think is present in the American armed forces. Yeah, I I didn't I don't like the <laughs> what aboutism. I just don't think you should make very sweeping claims about our respect for civilian life. Uh, and you can then limit it and limit it and limit it and say, well, since we've been fighting you know low intensity colonial wars, we haven't engaged in such wanton slaughter. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. But you I know, mean, to be fair, like terror, is, terror is the is Russian invasion of hmm. is it is it existential for them? Yeah, they think it is. Uh, that's no, but why it's they not did it. though. No, it is I mean, a low, it's, it's existential to their conception of the Russian Empire and the, who they think they are. <laughs> no, for sure <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, no, no. I mean, you may, you may though. think that, it, you may think it's ex- silly. Hmm. You may think it's silly, but they certainly see it that way. I'm not saying they're right to see it that way, but I I can fully appreciate how they see this. They see this as okay, a but an offensive war of choice is not an existential battle like World War Two, where fought, the actual exi- they think they're fighting NATO. Like again, you you, you, okay. can, you can say that they're <laughs> stupid and misguided, but at least you should take them at their word. You know what I mean? Look, I, I I I don't doubt that they believe some of them believe that this is real. I think it's just inaccurate and sure, wrong. Sure, like, I that's don't have fine. to defer to their conception of what's real. Like I said, I don't like doing this, what Glenn got us doing this, like what aboutism, like what about what we did in, in, in Iraq and stuff like that. I, I think it's 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 not that, that I, I, I don't take your argument, uh, this argument that no, 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 we're good and our intentions were better and therefore we're, we're better. I don't, I don't really take much truck with that. I just say, yeah, we kill people too. That's fine. War is an ugly thing. Um, and because it's largely true. I think if we were in a war that, that truly mattered to us, we would kill a lot of people and we would use the terror weapon to like break another country if it was really threatening our very existence. Absolutely. Would we be able to get rid of rules of engagement? I mean, just institutionally, I'm not sure what the president would, really would order like. it. Truman signed the, 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 the orders, right? Okay. Yeah. So you're, Fair enough. You're taking, though, a very extreme example and an, un- and an unusual one in American history. We can't necessarily generalize from that. How is it unusual in American history? Civil War, what, what the North did, like what, what Sherman did. That was, that was, you know, that was, it's, it's, it's the nature of war. I really, I, I, what I don't like is this idea that, you know, war needs to be, we need to talk about a civilized way of doing war. War involves inflicting pain on the enemy. And the the extent to which we don't do it in some of our wars is because these wars don't matter. So we are able to actually be pious about it. But the fact is, I, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah, war crimes exist, but they exist, again, this gets back to the whole question of authority and moral authority. It exists either before something we like to think is God and so that we will we will burn an everlasting hell for for doing these sorts of things, um, or then there's this concept of you know international justice, which really is just undergirded by American hegemony or Western hegemony. At some point, that breaks down and it doesn't matter. So you know, again, uh, you can say that these are crimes before God, and we're we're all going to suffer. You you made a case for that, but for Putin and and the rest of this, I don't have recourse to that. I just don't buy it. So I, you know, I, I just sort of shrug a little bit about this this kind of hand wringing about about violence. I think Russia should be stopped, and once we win, there should be victors' justice, and we should try them and, and hang them. But you know, it's not grounded in any like transcendent look, concept of justice. Okay, but what I would say that it's much more. The deeper difference here is that because we are citizens of a democracy, and because our our sort of moral intuition has not been distorted to the extent that it would be in an authoritarian regime. This gets back to, I think, a fundamental difference according to regime type that 
our moral intuitions are stronger because we live under a democracy. And therefore, if we were in a situation where we were like bombing schools and like massacring large numbers of people, I think that enough Americans, maybe not a majority, who knows, it's not for me to say, but because we're a democracy, enough Americans would express revulsion and communicate that to their representatives. Would that be enough to change the policy? I don't know. Depends how existential the battle was perceived to be by Americans. But at least at least that avenue would be open because our souls haven't been twisted the way that the Russian soul perhaps has been twisted under um, the better part of what, um, nearly a century of dictatorship with only with only minor interruption. So that does matter, I think. And it does help explain why so many Russians seem to have taken morally indefensible positions over the course of this war. I, I, I guess I disagree on that. I mean, it's at the core of my argument about the no-fly zone, which you, you found, you found uh, um, not persuasive that democracies actually can't constrain themselves. And I mean, there's been some political science work on this. I have a book somewhere. It's been since grad school since I read it. But, you know, uh, just sort of marveling at the fact that at how, how ruthless democracies are, in fact, in pursuing wars that they find, uh, you know, uh, absolutely important and necessary to win and how they're able to actually lather themselves up into a kind of fury and frenzy and have have a, a, a society-wide commitment that authoritarian uh, regimes actually don't have access to. Um, and that, in fact, there's nothing less bloody about wars persecuted by democracies than by authoritarian regimes. So I don't know. I'd, I'd, I'd question that. And I, my, my, my priors uh, push me in a different direction. This idea that that we are more morally, morally subtle as a people um, because we're, you know, have the, the, the gift of democracy. I, I don't know. I, I, that doesn't, that doesn't it's smell definitely right not to me. Demir speak. It's definitely something that you would not take to naturally. So I totally get that. Yeah. It is kind of like the opposite of Demir. Yeah. Like no, the, I, almost like the platonic <laughs> ideal of the opposite of Demir. So you're trolling me then. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> no, I believe <laughs> No, no, no. All right. Shut that meant Maybe yeah, on that note. Yeah, this is fun. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye, Demir. Bye.